Hey, founders, welcome back to another episode of the Gab Lab. This is a show that's designed to bring you financial intelligence to not only blow your mind, but to help you build your bottom line. I'm your show host, Tony Woods Richardson, and today's episode champion are our good friends over at Community Futures, Saskatchewan. They have over 13 offices across the province to help founders not only build their business, but to help them nail their numbers. So today's episode, we are joined in the lab by Nail the Number Pro, Rebecca McKenzie. And Rebecca is the president of the Culinary Tourism Alliance, but she's also one of the original uh, founders of a project called Taste of County, which was really the story and the, the impetus behind Prince Edward County, a sleepy little side community outside of Toronto that went from uh, $6 million and grew to $20 million in annual tourism revenue. So she's going to join us in the lab today because as many communities are looking to rebuild after COVID, they're trying to figure out where to start and who should be leading this initiative. So this episode's a little different. Founders definitely tune in, but all those economic developers, uh, let's get them watching this episode too. Thanks for watching. We'll see you in the lab. Well, hello, Rebecca. So happy that you've been able to make the time to join us today. Thanks for being here in the Gab Lab. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, today's episode, uh, it is different from our typical episodes because we're really drilling into not just the founder themselves, but the entire community, the entire ecosystem. I know that you're going to speak to that a little bit uh, with stakeholders, but um, what I am fascinated about is uh, your story and what you're bringing to the conversation today. It's, it's unique, it's rich, it's, uh, it's exquisite. It's, it's, um, I, I find all of the projects that you've been working on to be uh, tremendously fascinating, but maybe if you wouldn't mind sharing in a few words, what, uh, what that experience is that you're bringing to, the, bringing to the table today, to the conversation. Sure. So, um, you know, it, I'll try to summarize the last 25 years in a few minutes, but uh, I actually started my career in, in the space that I, I now have the pleasure of working in, which is culinary tourism. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I, was, uh, I owned a small retail uh, gourmet Canadian food gift shop in the first fruit winery in a small little place called Prince Edward County, Ontario, not to be confused with Prince Edward Island. Um, I I uh, very successfully ran that business um, and uh, had the opportunity to be part of a group of 100, 100 entrepreneurs who came together back in 1998 to develop uh, an organization called Taste the County. So I was actually the founding executive director of Taste the County and I ran that um, not-for-profit destination development and marketing organization for a decade, taking Prince Edward County from what was kind of known as Ontario's best kept secret to now known as one of Ontario's um, best culinary uh, escape destinations. And from there, um, I had the pleasure of actually contributing to a 10-year culinary tourism strategy that the Provincial Ministry of Tourism, Culture, Heritage and Sport invested in back in 2005 found myself on a, in another volunteer position with the, the organization uh, that uh, I've now been with for 13 years, the Culinary Tourism Alliance. So working with destinations across the province, across the country and around the globe to realize uh, culinary tourism as um, an economic stimulator within a destination, but really taking a mindfulness to what it takes to do that properly. And then in my spare time in 19 or 2019, I thought, you know, I'll just do a master's of arts and global leadership because, you know, who knew we'd have a pandemic uh, that would start six months later, but 
really find uh, the learning that I've been able to um, uh, gain over the last, I guess now going on uh, close to 19 months through Royal Rose University has been incredible as I sort of look to think about how we can reimagine what tourism and culinary tourism specifically can, can do to not only help destinations recover, but rebuild in a way that is, that is right and that starts looking at success through different lenses rather than just the economic success that so many times tourism destinations measure by. Ah, so this is what brings us to our conversation today and what this episode is all about, because we have um, this episode being championed by Community Futures, uh, Community Futures of Saskatchewan specifically, but are, uh, they've been, you know, we've, we've had great friendships with uh, Community Futures Manitoba and Saskatchewan and um, another area, Community Futures Sunrise. And so all of these community future offices across, the Canada, across Canada are there to support the rural founders and businesses that are within those communities. And what I loved about our discussion was recognizing that, you know, as people are listening in here, a lot of founders have tried to figure out, you know, what do we do to pivot so that we can survive? And now we have economic development offices like the community future offices trying to figure out what can we do to best support those founders and layered into that tourism. So hence why you're here to bring this entire ecosystem together. But one of the comments that you mentioned um, in our earlier conversation that really landed with me was about, um, about why food is such an important alignment with tourism because the amount that we eat and how to, what was your, your, uh, your language was demand generators and how we start pulling all of this together. Now I might be jumping a little too forward because I know that through all of these lessons that you've learned with um, Taste, the, Taste the County, you had some very strong um, suggestions on how these communities can better start going about understanding where to start in really just kind of rebuilding. Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting. I, I worked with our Community Futures Development Corporation, uh, Pella CFDC in Prince Edward County uh, back in the, I guess the early 2000s in the work that I did with Taste the County. And certainly now um, as a, as a not-for-profit organization, the Culinary Tourism Alliance, we actually have a whole uh, division within the organization that provides professional services. And most of our clients are municipalities, destination marketing organizations, and in fact, you know, right now we're doing the National Framework for Culinary Tourism for Falcha, Ireland, and we did the National Food Tourism Strategy for Scotland. So we've gone like super, super small rural communities to whole provinces. We've done, you know, New Brunswick's Food Tourism Strategy and, and actually just finished doing a couple of really great projects with the folks from Tourism Saskatoon, so right in your own backyard. Um, but really, you know, I think the, the, the key point here is there is only one thing that every tourist, every visitor to a destination has to do at least three times a day and likely more is eat. And if we can think about, um, you know, many destinations get really stuck on what are their demand generators. And for a really long time, it's it's been challenging to get folks in tourism to understand that while food and being a culinary destination might not be your demand generator, it is certainly a secondary way to capture more spend and to really help uh, stimulate more of a robust and sustainable local economy, especially when you address things like food security and food access, and you start thinking about the whole system. And so, you know, when you talk about um, 
sort of the steps to take. I think one of the, the things that not only in my own personal career with Taste the County and then coming into the CTA, but what we do with also all, all of our clients that we work with is we, you know, we, we start first and foremost that culinary tourism isn't a marketing, developing culinary tourism isn't a marketing activity. It's a, it's a community development activity because it really is about connecting all of the businesses along the culinary tourism value chain. And when we talk culinary tourism value chain, it's not just restaurants. So we start by looking at what's the base ingredient for taste of place. And that's our farmers and our terroir. So what's grown in a destination? How is it raised? What are the added value food and beverage processors doing with these great ingredients and products that come from their destination? You know, what are the types of experiences a consumer could have on farm to learn and really immerse themselves in that learning? Um, you know, how could they visit a farmer's market and get a taste of place, not only the food, but also the culture of a destination? And then how do those uh, farms and, and producers work with restaurants and the food service industry to sort of, you know, that's the other touch point where a visitor in market can really get a true sense of places, how it's reflected on the plates and in the glass of the restaurants that they visit in that destination. We look at, you know, um, the, the, the culinary offerings through the lens of accommodations, um, through, you know, specialty food retailers, through visiting those added value food and beverage processors, be it wineries, breweries, cideries. And, you know, I mentioned Prince Edward County. I had my business in the first fruit winery. You know, fast forward 25 years later, there's dozens of wineries. There's over a dozen craft breweries. There's several craft cideries. There's a distiller. So it's just really interesting because it's sort of, I always maintain, it's a bit of a tumbleweed effect that, you know, you got to kind of build this critical mass of like-minded entrepreneurial spirit from a cluster of, of a bigger cluster than just say the drink segment. But when you bring that value chain together and you, you can attract new investment because there's a, an energy that a community can create that is appealing for, for those who have a, a creative mindset and want to innovate in the food and beverage space. But also that's where, you know, at, you know, as an example, Prince Edward County's demand generator was the Sandbanks Provincial Park. It still is. I mean, hands down, you know, 750 to a million people, 750,000 to a million people come for the park every year. But that's a different type of consumer than the one who's coming for that taste of place experience. Um, they're going to tend to linger longer, stay in roofed accommodations, spend more on food and beverage, spend more on discretionary activities and, and retail. So, you know, I think when we were chatting uh, the other day it was really sort of before you kind of step in, you want to sort of realize what do you want your destination to look like in 10, 15, 20 years time? And how do you do that in a way that's mindful to make sure that you um, you develop in a way that's still going to respect what you love about your community and what visitors will love about your community while also having the ability to to grow your your local economy grow your tax base and and keep a quality of life there for for not just the visitors but the locals and so if we look at prince edward county as a case study what was the what was the original impetus to actually go oh we need to do more here what was that call to action that got everybody rallying around the, the project? 
So there was, uh, and it, it's quite interesting because I just was talking with one of my mentors from, from, from those early days, Nora Rogers, and uh, it, there was really about a hundred entrepreneurs from across the culinary tourism value chain. But at the time we didn't call it that. Oh, didn't that. that was. Okay. Uh, we all came together and went, oh my gosh, like we really have to figure out how to do something better because we're all killing ourselves in June, July, and August to live the other nine months off of what we've earned in the three months of the year where we're just flat out. And so at the time, um, you know, we identified some funding opportunities through our Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. That's where sort of the real vision came back at that at that time. And we identified what were our, you know, our assets outside of the park. And when did we have capacity to showcase those? And really what it boiled down to was, you know, we're a prime agriculture destination and um, and we could really take and leverage and celebrate um, so some key touch points that are critical in agriculture. So specifically, we have, you know, had a, a, about a dozen maple syrup producers. So one of the first things we did was create a program called Maple in the County. And that was really just to get all of the sugar bushes who would do different pancake things and different experiences at their sugar bushes throughout the month of March and say, let's all come together on one weekend and celebrate it and let's draw a critical mass. And over time, uh, Tanya, what was really great is we opened up the programming to include restaurants that did maple themed menus. Our local theater did like a sugar bush shindig. We had uh, art galleries do maple themed uh, art shows. We had added value food and brev uh, beverage processors putting maple into beer and into cheese and you name it. And he, like became, became a, a signature event at a demand generator in March, which for us was such a key piece. We then went on and looked at the back end of the sort of uh, the harvest year and we created a huge celebration called Taste a Celebration of Regional Cuisine. And again, it was really to bring all those growers, producers and, and, and what was coming from the ground and doing one great big celebration that kind of took it above and beyond a, a country fair. And really, again, it, it was sort of that anchor, another anchor event. And then through the development of those two programs, we realized that it's kind of that old adage, how do you know where to go? You just wanna to be told where, like, just tell me where to go, right? And so we created the taste trail, which we knew would attract people who were interested in food and drink. And the minute they'd see that sign that would take them along the trail and hopefully get them to discover more. But more importantly, it was gonna take all of those people who didn't think about the county as we fondly refer to it, as a food and drink destination and inspire them to go, what's this taste trail? What I'm on a taste trail. Oh, what, let's check this out. Where do we go? And the next thing you know, they've become an accidental culinary tourist and they've stayed longer and they've spent more and that money's all gone back into the local economy. Wow. Okay. So if I'm with everything that you said, I'm looking to distill it down for those that are listening to this. Here's what I heard and correct me where I'm wrong. It's when we start, we look to see where the, the pain points are. So I heard you mention the seasonality, the lack of kind of sustainability, because there was these peaks and valleys. And to me, I heard, uh, the word I heard was isolation, but it was more that everybody was kind of operating independently of one another and then going through these peaks and valleys. So that was the impetus. And then step two then was about understanding the demand generators. And in this specific situation, you talked about the, the Sandbanks, your provincial park, which brought out all of the tourists understanding that this is where the seasonality was coming from. Mm -hmm. But then you talked about something really important, which was about your, your local assets. 
So outside of those demand generators, what do we have currently within our toolkit that we can start to leverage? I'm really curious, who's the we? Is this, is this the, yeah, who's the yeah, we? Yeah, so the we was Taste the County. So it, okay. it, that's what it became. So this, hundred, okay. this group of hundred entrepreneurs sort of started this initiative. We were able to access we being volunteers at the time, we're able to access the funds. But then how I got kind of sucked in from to selling my business and starting as the executive director with Taste the County was like, it was one of those fun funding uh, projects where you, you get the dollars, but you have to spend the dollar to get the 50 cent back. So it was a matching yes. program, but we didn't have, we didn't have a dollar. So we couldn't even get the 50 cents. So the very first thing I did as a volunteer was I put together this spring fling, this cooperative marketing uh, program to really get the, the community to start saying, okay, this is what we have here now. How do we celebrate that? How do we come together? So it was really kind of our first sort of cooperative initiative, but I will say the, the, but over time, what happened was it was really these businesses that all came together and said, we realized that we have to work in coopetition that alone, we are a nothing, but collectively we can have that, that power of the voice that will encourage people to come here. And you know what's interesting, Tanya, when I look back at one of the biggest challenges I can remember in early days, because our office was based out of the Chamber of Commerce, is on a rainy weekend, you'd watch all the campers pack up all their stuff and they drive back to the cities. Because we're two hours from Toronto and about three hours from Ottawa. And as, as we began to grow culinary tourism, and then we evolved, we actually went into arts tourism, we created an arts trail. As we began to to create these experiences that people could, could, could capture people's imagination, people stayed. So what we found is we weren't having that, um, you know, the sort of sieve of people leaving because there was bad weather. All of a sudden it's like, okay, well, you know, it's a rainy day. We can go to the wineries, we can go to the breweries, we can go to the art galleries, we can do different things. We don't have to leave. And it was really through creating that product that also then gave us the marketing benefit where we never advertised. Everything we did was PR media relations because we had this great story about how we were all working together. Taste the County, when I left in 2008, had 260 businesses from a community of 25,000 people, 260 businesses that paid in as annual memberships, bought into the pay to play programs, and were incredible partners, you know. However, the, the, on a sad note, that organization doesn't exist anymore. It, uh, it closed its doors about four or five years ago, several executive directors after me, and tourism has gone completely back into the municipality. And um, there are challenges in the community, you know, without a good destination development plan, short-term rentals have come in and sucked up uh, most of the inventory. So that if you're looking to purchase a home in the community, it's very challenging. Prices have gone through the roof. As, as you know, Prince Edward County is not an anomaly. There's many rural destinations who are seeing huge demand for, for, for people from the city looking to flee. Uh, but, you know, we're also, they're, they're dealing with a lot of issues that have to do with too much demand in, in a peak season still. So it's still summer and not enough systems in place to manage that. And they recognize that but it's going to take a long time to fix and it's going to, it's going to take a, it's going to, they're going to need to take a very, very collaborative approach on how to do that because of the various stakeholders and the, and the, 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 the systems within systems. So they've got a provincial park on an Island, 
No doubt. So what, what I love about where you're going with this, it sounds like we are getting into challenges and then also stakeholders. And I know that in our first call, you had talked a lot about understanding the stakeholders and the value of the stakeholders and getting everybody on the same page. So um, in our next segment, if it's okay with you, we'll talk about those challenges because I think there's a lot of learning in that um, as well as the stakeholder piece. In this first piece, where uh, where you were going, I was getting goosebumps as you were talking because one of our episodes, we talked about the importance of a brand. And when you talked about as, you know, as we we're mentioning, you've got the demand generators, then you look at your assets, then you talked about kind of building the thread. And I think your thread, you start off with maple syrup, right? And, and taking that journey and then infusing that maple syrup in, in all the stories and then how that started to evolve. But where I can see the correlation here between brand is brand is really about an experience and it gets infused in everything that you do. And so I'm drawing these parallels between a brand of a company and now a brand of a community. And what does that community stand for and how does it get infused? I love that word that you shared with us. Um, Coopetition. Was that it? Um, how even though these businesses are independent from one another, how each of them can infuse that thread in their experience that they deliver. I think that was so powerful. I'm so grateful for you sharing that because you're right. As you were talking about those stories of people packing up, that's what I've experienced in a lot of these remote communities, right? When the weather turns, everybody just packs up, but so many other touch points that people can explore and experience if everybody's on the same page, which it sounds like is a really important piece of it all. It's a huge piece. Oh, well, thank you, Rebecca. That, um, that is actually, that, that whole segment um, brings me lots of excitement and enthusiasm and optimism for what can be created because I know these rural communities across Western Canada and into Ontario and out East, I know everywhere, we don't fully appreciate what's in our own backyard. And I think people even in the backyard don't appreciate what they have. You know, it, it's a Canadian, I don't know if it's a Canadian way or a North American way, but we, we become so insular and we forget what we have. And sometimes it takes even somebody from away coming in to sort of point out all these great things that you have. And then it does take leadership at a local level to say, okay, you know what, I'm going to take off my, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take an, and not work in a silo. I'm going to look at all the potential partnerships. And that's a huge piece. We've been delivering workshops in partnership with the Tourism Industry Association of Canada over the last year through their Elevating Canadian Experience program. And one of our whole modules has been around uh, partnership development. And it really, sometimes it's a bit of a fine art for people who aren't necessarily comfortable with the idea of working with somebody who they compete with. But it really, I believe, is the way moving forward, especially as we're dealing with rural communities who may have capacity issues with regards to human resources mm -hmm. or the ability to access capital to, you know, realize some of the things that they may want right from day one but can't afford. So, yeah, we can explore more of that in the next segment. Beautiful. Well, Rebecca, thank you for being here for this first segment. Uh, big shout out to our episode champions. Thank you for recommending this topic, Community Features Saskatchewan. It's an important one that benefits not only the founders, but the entire ecosystem. So thank you, Rebecca. We'll see you in here uh, back in the lab for part two.
All right, founders, welcome back to part two of this fascinating conversation, really all about economic development and destination tourism. We're joined in the lab by Neil the Number Pro, Rebecca McKenzie, who is the, uh, you'll have to excuse me as I have a hair in my mouth here, um, who is the president of Culinary, Culinary Tourism Alliance. And uh, Rebecca, in our part one of what we were talking about in this episode, uh, you got me really excited about the potential of what all these rural communities can do and the optimism and the hope that, uh, that these communities have in front of them. And now in part two, we're gonna talk a little bit about, uh, not a little bit, a lot. I think this is where all the meat is on the bones, but the lessons learned through this experience, you know, hindsight is 2020, but you know, your experience, this is gonna be invaluable. So one of the things that you shared with me uh, the other day was really about when we start this, we talked about the, the, the impetus to start, but really understanding what the end is supposed to look like. What is the vision of what it is that you're, uh, of, what is the vision of what you're building? And then what are all of those touch points along the way? So maybe you can start by just sharing with us, how do we start with that end in mind? Who do we need to, to have at the table in that process? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, um, you're right. Hindsight is truly 2020. And, um, you know, this is where, uh, first and foremost, I think the best thing about mistakes is learning from them. And I also think challenges are, uh, I love looking at challenges as opportunities rather than barriers. Um, you know, good community economic development needs leadership who has a vision and who engages all of the stakeholders. We kind of finished the last episode talking about stakeholders. So, you know, in a, in a rural community, um, making sure that your members of municipal council are fully on board with understanding um, that you're creating a long-term vision, that they engage uh, their constituency, that you have um, representation uh, and diversity at the table uh, representing the types of businesses and the types of, uh, of community organizations that will be affected by growth. And then, um, and then bring in key partners. So if you've got a provincial park or a national park, or if you've got a big attraction, like you've got to have those, those players at the table and you need to be thinking long-term because um, often what happens is tourism will, will come and folks from tourism will come and look at just what they think tourism is, which is, you know, accommodations and restaurants and maybe attractions. But the reality is, is that tourism touches on every part of your economy. In fact, many folks in the economic development space and in tourism are now referring to it as the visitor economy, because it's everything from when they stop and fill up their gas and the experience they have there. Just imagine if your gas attendants, if you still have them, are the best ambassadors to say, oh, hey, are you in town? You're visiting in town. Well, you know, you've got to go and check out the best place for ice cream in town or whatever it might be, right? To, uh, to thinking about, you know, we were just, just quickly talking on the break. You know, if you don't recognize where, if you increase visitation, there could be uh, cracks in, in different infrastructure then thinking about it when it's already cracked is too late. So, you know, as an example, I shared with you in Prince Edward County during the summertime, don't hurt yourself because you'll be waiting like eight to 10 hours at the emergency room because it's a tiny little rural community that all of a sudden sees this massive influx of people. And so when you're creating that visitor economy and you're encouraging tourism growth, you need to think about long-term where revenues will be realized and where they need to be reinvested back into the community to ensure 
that the long-term health of the community stays in place. And when I say health, I'm talking about social health. I'm talking about health health. I'm talking about cultural health. Um, I'm not talking about just health from the perspective of, of wealth or the monetary health, because really at the end of the day, that's, that's not the be all and end all. And certainly as we become more aware of the uh, ripple effect that COVID-19 has had around the world, and especially in the tourism sector, in fact, probably one of the hardest hit with, with the many challenges from closing and reopening and certainly not seeing international visitors or in many cases, even other Canadian destinations visiting. This is where, you know, there has to be a mindfulness and really thinking about how to encourage those local partnerships to be developed in the in the creation of your taste of place story and in the creation of building yourself as a culinary tourism destination, how uh, those local partnerships will help to make sure that your locals are your bread and butter first and your visitors are your tourists or your gravy. Mm. And often we go to create business models that are completely focused on the visitor or the tourist. And we do that at the expense of our local market and at the expense of being able to be resilient when there's shocks, be it a pandemic, an environmental shock, or an economic shock. So speaking of expenses, what costs did your local community actually absorb as a result of the, the visitor economy? I know you talked a little bit about housing. I know just now you've talked about um, the, the healthcare system and the hospitals. What else have you seen as a result of increasing the visitor economy? What cost at the locals? So, you know, I mean, it's a small island community. It's 800 kilometers of shoreline. There's a lot of roads to be maintained. Uh, it's 25,000 people who live on the island year round. And then, and then, of course, we get this tourism influx. So just, you know, an example of like road maintenance. Okay. Um, I, I learned last week when I was doing some research for my, uh, my master's studies that on July 4th last year, the provincial park turned away 2,000 cars. They were at capacity by 10 a.m. and they turned away 2,000 cars. That's the equivalent of taking one of the small towns, the town of Wellington, and telling the entire community to go away or go somewhere else. That, if that, that uh, over, over demand and not having the capacity pushed people out to other park and conservation areas that didn't have infrastructure, so they didn't have you know, proper waste disposal. They didn't have enough public restrooms. So all of a sudden you're starting to deal with waste, increased waste, disturbances between the visitor and the resident, built up animosities. And you know, it's not just, again, Prince Edward County, I was just doing some really interesting reading about the challenges they've had in Hawaii is just one example, you know, where in 2019 they had floods. So they had to change their park systems and then COVID hit and now all of a sudden you know, places that you never would see locals going to because there were too many tourists, the locals are getting out and enjoying these local treasures for the first time in years and years. Uh -huh. And they realize like, how do we, how do, if we go back, we'll lose this again. So how do we go back? So it's this mindfulness and understanding that, you know, that old saying, if you build it, they will come. Yes. We need to be careful of what it is you're building. What is your, what is the, what does the end vision look like? And then how do you ensure that you've got policy and regulation at a municipal level that can address things like, for example, short-term rentals? I mean, I don't think many destinations saw or had any idea what the impact of Airbnb would be on them, but it's now not going away, right? So yes, there are some ways to regulate and change, but at the same time, 
you've still got people who bought homes and instead of them living in them, they're short-term rentals, which means that a local can't access that. And it also makes it more challenging for rural businesses to house staff. Cause it's like, okay, you can have all the jobs in the world, but if you can't get people to come cause there's nowhere for them to, to live, yeah. that's another challenge. So it's, you know, really thinking about all of the touch points and where within a community, when you grow any type of industry, but you know, tourism definitely, uh, you know, more specifically is what are all the factors that can, can be affected and really looking at and taking a systems approach to the development. And also from a business perspective, really identifying all of your potential revenue opportunities, be it, you know, uh, direct from your own business, or are there partnership opportunities? Are there, you know, ways you build your brand that you can then export a product and it becomes a, it becomes a brand that's recognized that pulls people into your destination. Like we've seen what, you know, wineries and distilleries have been able to do, but I've been, even during the pandemic, I've been coaching businesses from coast to coast to coast. And I've heard some great stories of restaurants who were always known for their signature fish sauce or their signature salad dressing. And they've now gotten into packaging and branding and, and selling those products e-commerce. And now they're looking for grocery retail partners and shipping. And it's like, great. You know, all of a sudden they diversified their revenue. They've they've managed to pivot and I will all looking right. for the, the new P word or the new S words. It's not shift or pivot, but they've been actually really be able to be able to step back and look at, okay, here's a product that, you know, people loved when they came here, they can't come here. How can I get this to them? And how can I leverage existing programs? Because it is interesting to see, you know, the funding that is coming out for smaller to medium sized business operators that are enabling them either to ramp up their uh, virtual presence or their e-commerce presence. Mm -hmm. and, And people that are doing that effectively, people that are like figuring out how to take and take that product and partner with a ghost kitchen or another commercial kitchen so that they can actually commercialize something that before they might not have ever had the time to do. And again, that's going to give them more resiliency moving forward. So if, uh, so for the people that are listening to this and really excited about this idea of building a visitor economy within the community that they have, for somebody that's looking to get started, whether it's an economic development office or, you know, several champions within that community that say, hey, you know what, we have a huge opportunity here. Where would you recommend they start? It, it sounds like you have to get all of the stakeholders on board, but where do you start in this entire process? Well, you know, I mean, it, it's interesting because uh, having come at it from a couple of different places, uh, you know, if you're coming at it from an economic development office and you've got budget, uh, then you need to create a plan. But you need to do that plan in uh, in a process that in, it is very inclusive of all the stakeholders. I often, it's very frustrating. We'll have people who come and they're like, okay, we want a plan developed in six months. It's like, okay, but you're going into the peak tourism and peak agricultural season. So how are you going to engage with your stakeholders so they can be part of this plan? Like you need to actually provide nine months to a year if you really want to do this plan and you really want your stakeholders who are going to hopefully win from this plan, be part of it. And you can't go and do that when, you know, I always say from like May to October, it's the hardest time of the year to get those stakeholders to come out because they're making hay while the sun shines, literally. You know, from the tourism perspective and the ag. So slow yourself down a bit. If you really truly want this to be a community initiative, recognize the challenges of the 
the operators that you want to engage with and work with them to include them and make sure it's a really inclusive process and you provide platforms to hear them and, okay. and really listen. And then, you know, if you don't have, if you don't have a community economic development office who has the, has the willpower or the resources to do that in your group, a community group, it's really kind of coming together to identify, you know, what that, what does 10 years down the road look like? What, you know, what is, what is, um, what does the health of our community look like from, um, you know, uh, both uh, social, cultural, environmental, and economic? So like looking at it through more than one lens and then going through that process, you know, maybe you're getting together, you know, when we're allowed to gather safely and having a couple different coffee town hall meetings. I know that's how we started. We just had different business operators who would host sessions and we'd capture ideas and notes. And then, you know, we had a champion and a volunteer who went to find money to create a strategy. Even the organization that uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of running for the last 13 years, we, 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 we became into existence because the Ministry of Tourism, Culture and Sport here in Ontario had the vision to create a culinary tourism strategy. But when I joined as a board member in 2007, there was $25,000 budget to execute a 10-year strategy. So as a volunteer board member, I wrote three different grants and raised $750,000 to actually help kick off executing the strategy. Wow. Wow. So starting small, taking small, consistent steps, right? Engaging the community as you take these steps. So everybody's got buy-in in in the process, not just handing them that end document. I'm I'm curious, um, do you have, I'm curious as to the numbers and, and, Sorry, I didn't prep you with this question, but um, from where Prince Edward County was to what it grew into within what time frame, what does that look like? So from 1998, where visitor uh, tourism spending was around six million a year uh, to the time I left, which was 2008, it was over 20 million. It's, you know, and of course, that was 13 years ago. You're going to see it much higher than that. Um, the amount of new investment that's come to the community is quite remarkable. And what's really interesting is there still is not a branded hotel chain on the island, but there are a number of larger accommodations that have been invested at a boutique level. And so it, I think that that's also part of the what really appeals to the consumer is there's so much genuine, authentic creativity there. You know, it's not... Sure, you know, unfortunately, they've still got the Tim Hortons and the McDonald's and stuff like that, but it's not as in your face as in many other destinations you'll find who kind of sold out to the, you know, push everything to the mall and kill our downtown. There was very much always very active business improvement associations. In fact, you know, at one point while I was running Taste the County, I was also the the head of the Bloomfield and Area Business Association. And I will say, you know, the value of those kind of organizations are so uh key because they really are the the lifeblood they hear what's going on they're talking with their members they understand what the business community is is dealing with and they're looking at all the challenges as opportunities and and most importantly you know having having an organization that can also come in and kind of like at 3000 feet see that everything is going on and go okay there's no point in recreating a wheel. Let's just figure out how we're either all going to kind of put our spoke into the one that's already spinning um, and, and, and deal with some of the challenges like human resourcing for a lot of small communities, budget. And, and, that's, and that really is, again, where taking that 
um, kind of collective approach is so important mm-hmm. and having, having that longer term vision with a, with somebody or with even a collective group who can really look at, at everything at the system as a whole. So one of the things I love about the value that you bring to this conversation and your work overall, and you have to remind me what association it is specifically, but where I'm drawing a lot of parallels is in the work that Community Futures does is they ask founders to build the plan, right? To build the strategy. And what you're talking about here is very similar to what we would build in a business plan where you understand what you're building, what the impact is, what is the end game, right? AKA exit strategy, not saying that these communities exit, but what are you actually in the process of building? So the parallels, where I also see a big parallel is oftentimes as as founders, being a founder myself, we don't know what we don't know. And so where your value I think is so profound is in having gone through that experience from that 6 million to that 20 million in that short window, being able to understand all of those moving parts and the impact or the cost to the locals as well, and being able to mitigate that in the process of this build out of the visitor economy, I think is so powerful. So can you remind me what association is it that you're involved with that actually helps communities looking to build this visitor economy? So the Culinary Tourism Alliance, so okay. our organization. So we work, like I said, we work with destinations um, across the province, the country, and around the globe. We do everything from strategy development to uh, product development, ideation to capacity building. So just as an example, one of the projects that we're just wrapping up with the Tourism Industry Association of Canada, we've delivered over 50 workshops in partnerships with uh, provincial marketing organizations and localized destination marketing organizations. The workshops have been specific to business operators and the outcome of those workshops has afforded, I think it's about 60 business operators across the country got some one-on-one coaching with me. I've been spending an hour and a half with almost 60 businesses, really helping them to figure out what are the next steps for them, where, where do they, if they already have an existing um, culinary tourism experience, how can they elevate that through some additional partnerships? If they're looking at creating some new products or experiences, where to start? Or if they're already doing things, but they're just not telling their story really well, well, where are some of those touch points? Because at the end of the day, and absolutely you're right, Tanya, you know, this destination development concept is really no different than a business plan for an individual business operator. But one of the things that we, you know, we sometimes have to have somebody come in from outside is to help identify where our gaps are or or where these opportunities lie and then recognize that you don't have to be everything to your business i know it's hard but it's like okay you know i i built my my career on knowing what i don't know and figuring out who does who does know what i need to know and know it well and going and meeting them and having a conversation and either striking up a partnership or hiring them to help. You know, right now we're in the process of um, undertaking a diversity, equity and inclusion strategy within our organization. And we've hired a third party to do an audit. And, you know, we're creating tools not only to help us internally, but to help us lead better in this space um, externally, because we know that um, the stories that we tell and the products that we promote don't necessarily reflect the true culinary cultural diversity that we have here in Ontario and that we need to do better. And it's not that we didn't know this pre-COVID. It's just, you know, there's a silver lining to the last year is we've been able to slow down and really go, okay, 
So we've got a bit of time. What, what's not working? How do we fix this? How do we, how do we uh, course correct, if you will? And again, not, not trying to be everything to everybody and certainly not having all the answers, but at least starting. And, you know, having, having worked with the folks at Community Futures Development, you know, I think I, I always actually maintain that, you know what, actually now, Tanya, that I'm thinking about it, my business loan came from CFDC, Pella CFDC, and that was 20, that's going on almost 26 years ago. And Randy Ellis was my mentor and uh, he was outstanding. I actually paid off a, a three-year business loan in six months because of my business plan, because wow. I had somebody who mentored me and really helped me drill down on, you know, understanding profit, understanding all of my costs and my inputs, but also really figuring out how to define my market share and, and build a good brand. And, you know, it's sometimes that's really, really tough for, for, for people to do all those things for yes. you or for you to do yourself. But that's the huge value of, of outsourcing expertise, right? Oh, well, I so appreciate you bringing that up. It, it certainly wasn't planned for, but you're right. It, it's, I, I think it comes back to this message of um, sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees when you're in the middle of the forest. So reaching out, asking for help, right? Reaching out to experts like yourself who have been through the experience of putting together a community and a, and a, a visitor economy. And for those of you that are founders within this community, reaching out to your community future office to get them to help you see the gaps in your business plan. And hopefully there's, you know, there will be in many of these communities a, a plan for that, that visitor economy. So I think this is a, sorry, go ahead. Yes. I was just going to say, I was just thinking, you know, just like a business might not be able to see the forest through the trees, a destination might not either, which is why, you know, sometimes having that uh, third party to come in and go, actually, yeah. look at all your assets. You just need yes. to think about them in a different framework. Absolutely. And it comes back to the point that, uh, that you were referring to through COVID about how it has encouraged all of us to slow down. But I've also noticed that it has really, um, been able to put all of us in a position of being able to better appreciate what we have, mm. right? The friendships, the family, the health, um, what's in our backyard. And so for those communities that are looking to build a, a visitor economy, really starting to tap into and tie into, wow, what are our assets? What are, what's, our, what's our value that we have right now? So thank you, Rebecca. I so appreciate you being here and spending the time to go through some of the lessons learned. Um, I can appreciate there's a lot to it. Thank you for making the time here for, for this segment. And will you be okay joining us in here for part three to just quickly go through... Um, some of the measurement, right? Now implementing and then modifying and measuring because that's important as well as, as well for every business owner out there. Um, so again, thank you for being here. Community Futures Saskatchewan, thank you again for recommending this episode. Um, it is uh, it's beyond powerful. It it's kind of blows my mind uh, outside of our typical founder discussions. So, all right, we'll see you in here for part three, everybody. All right, welcome back founders for part three of better understanding economic development and destination tourism. And as Rebecca McKenzie, our Nail the Number Pro and president of Culinary Tourism Alliance pointed out, we're talking about the visitor economy. And for this part of our segment, we're actually talking about measurement. I know this is not a fond 
um, or favorable topic for many founders because we like to do, 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 but we know that we can do better if we actually start to measure and then modify as we, as we go through it. So thanks for, for, uh, for joining us again here, Rebecca, for our last segment of this uh, amazing episode. And as we were speaking over the break, I, I thought maybe I would just share this with everybody watching, because in, in my experience working with many rural communities across this country, um, one of the, the, the themes that typically come up from many founders is this feeling of less than less than what big urban centers are doing. You know, these big major cities that they've got the skyscrapers and all these profound experiences that everybody can have. And then everybody's, you know, all these, these founders in these smaller communities are saying, oh, we're just a small community, right? We just have this small business. And then oftentimes they charge a small price because they have a hard time saying, where's the value? So I just thought I would throw this out there if that's connecting with everybody, because what I'm hearing in your conversation, Rebecca, is the power of unity. And when everybody starts collaborating on this mission and this purpose of bringing people in to have these experiences, the value gets elevated right away, right? Like there's so much power in that. So I just wanted to throw that out there for, for anyone that uh, can find value in that comment. So back to measurement. Um, do you, one, one statement that really landed when we were talking, I love this, you have to go beyond measuring just the heads and beds and the bums and seats, because that is not what this is about when we're starting to talk about this tourism and visitor economy. So maybe if you could expand on that a little bit for us. Sure, you know, and, and it's interesting. This is another sort of point where in this fragile moment in the tourism industry, um, many destinations are trying to question how they move forward with measurement because so often government sees the success of tourism based on heads and beds because they get a mat tax, typically a municipal accommodation tax or a, a visitor tax, uh, or through the bums and seats, whether that's at the restaurants or at the attractions, uh, or whether it's sporting events or big, uh, you know, or even meetings and conventions business. Mm. And really what we have to recognize and start thinking about is, is, is the framework that we're creating when we develop tourism, where uh, we start to measure the, the value of the partnerships that are created uh, we, we look at, at where the dollars are spent beyond sort of maybe those, those major demand generators or, or just the heads and beds. You know, it's so interesting for so long, we were like, how do you qualify a tourist? Well, you know, typically a tourist would be somebody who has traveled more than 40 kilometers from their home for a visit. And yet we put this enormous value as an example on the international traveler, not to say that they aren't, they are significantly valuable because they tend to stay longer and spend more. But, you know, at what cost are we developing a destination with that market in mind and cutting out our local and our domestic market? And we're seeing that in destinations across the country, destinations that have put all their eggs in the international basket mm. and are now really suffering because of it. And now they're going, well, we can't charge what we charge the international traveler to the local, but we need the locals right now. But we have to be very careful that, you know, when we open the doors to international that we don't tick up all the locals because they won't be able to pay. And it's like, okay, well, this is where you get creative. You know, where can you build local ambassador programs where you can reward visitors from your local economy? You can leave space for them in your experiences, even during peak seasons, you know, you can encourage them to come 
uh, when it's less hectic and recognize their value. Um, but also recognize that you shouldn't diminish the value of what you're offering simply because you are a remote or rural destination. And, you know, it's interesting. I find often that it's, that it's um, small businesses have a hard time justifying uh, their, their, their pricing because they feel like they aren't as competitive with, you know, other producers or with, you know, maybe a more glamorized urban mm-hmm. uh, um product or, or offering, but the reality is if somebody's landed on your doorsteps in a rural destination, if you provide them with great value and you tell your story really well and you show them how you're delivering an authentic experience, not only are they gonna be more than happy to pay for that, but that's actually what they're looking for is that value add and it's really how you position it. It's just, I think many small businesses suffer from imposter syndrome, like they're like, oh, yes. I'm I'm not good enough or my, I'm not, big, I'm not big enough yet to charge that. It's like, well, the problem is if you start low, it's really high to go hard to go high. Why not just start at like market value and, uh, and then go higher, you know, not, not below. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been very encouraged in the last couple of months talking to operators who are finally spending enough time in their business development cycle to do market research and really get a sense of what's out there and what the market will bear and understand, you know, I'm also talking with destinations who are like, oh, but our locals won't pay that. And it's like, okay, so fair, but you can't deliver the service really for less than that. You know, I mean, you've really got to do the business case. What does it cost you to deliver the product or service? And if you know that your local market can't bear that, and they're, they're not really your primary target market, but they're certainly a market that you need to rely on, especially in situations like right now, then you need to figure out either how you bring the cost of your product and service down to meet what they can afford, or you figure out some type of value add. So you package like a four for the price of three kind of experience. So you're not devaluing because you need to get back to a place where you can charge your true value, right? Yes. Uh, I love that you're bringing that up. I know we've talked about this in other episodes and I'll find those episodes and put them in the show notes, but to that point, it's a understand exactly what you're out of pocket to deliver that product or service. So not necessarily market value, but to your case, that the business case behind the numbers, because otherwise you're just doing yourself a disservice, right? You're just digging yourself in deeper and faster. And then what you're speaking about with respect to, to, understanding um, what people can afford and then trying to repackage. Uh, One of the suggestions that came up earlier uh, in one of the episodes was splintering. So to that point, if you're, if you're offering ABCDE for the, for the, the, the tourists, maybe you do A and B and it's half the cost, but to your point, you're not diminishing your value. It's just, you're finding a way to, to repackage that offering at a price point that's accessible. But I kind of like it. I liken it to the the model that a restaurant uses for an a la carte menu as opposed yeah. to a prefix, right? Yes, yes. You know, if you take that analogy and you break that down and you sort of think, okay, well, this is what I can afford to deliver for this. Um, ultimately, I want to sell the prefix because that's where the profit is. But I can, I can, I can say, okay, in fairness, I'll create that a la carte menu to get me uh, access to the localized market. I think, you know, what's super interesting. I've talked to so many restaurateurs who are all, everybody's like, Oh, the takeout and the, you know, the, the, the prepared meals, they must be the saving grace of your business. And it's like, mm, 
yeah, I mean, it's still a lot better when somebody comes and sits at your table and they're having the product right here and they're buying your alcohol and they're buying, you know, that that's where you're going to make your margins. Like it's really not the margins aren't in the food. So right. it might be helping from cash flow, but from a profitability perspective, it's not likely not, especially with the increased cost of packaging and, you know, just, and, and just waste and everything. So yes. there's so many factors, right. And even every business has so many factors and yeah. that's what I'm actually really, really enjoying about my master's work is just sort of taking and looking at everything, which sometimes seems overwhelming, but it's in looking at the entire system is where you see, you know, where you've got the potential for negative and positive impacts and where, where, you know, where those potential cracks can cause an opportunity for things to break or rebuild or, or refine. And, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's interesting because it's very academic, but it's like, oh, this is how I've always dealt with things in my life. Who knew that I was doing the right things? But now to look at it at a, at a global perspective and really, you know, one of the things we love about food tourism and the work that we do at the Culinary Tourism Alliance is building those relationships between farmers and chefs, largely because many relationships haven't naturally had to exist because of how we've industrialized and globalized our food systems. And if we really want to get back to building healthy local economies that have food security, that have, you know, the, the vibrancy of, of people staying on farm. So, you know, rethinking the way that agricultural works so that even farming uh, and, and traditional farms could diversify their revenues so that they can keep their, young, their next generation on farm is fascinating. You know, it's in fact, I was talking with a producer out of Alberta the other day. They're a couple in their 50s. They have kids in their 20s. They have a, a plan in five years that both of their kids will return on farm. Uh, their daughter, thankfully, has a degree in agriculture, so she's going to come back and run the herd. But they're very much focused on regenerative farming of, of beef cattle. So they're going in that direction of what they know the next generation and the consumer is interested in is the, the style of raising animals and the respect for the earth and the planet. And then their son's going to culinary college and they're already looking at building him an on-farm restaurant because he wants to do whole animal butchery in a restaurant. And I'm like, that's wow. vision. Yes. Because, you know, it's, 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 that's the only way they're going to keep that farm on the family for the, now it will be the fourth generation. Wow. Well, and, and not only that, but obviously the, the impact that that has on the, as you said, that, that visitor tourism, but this alignment of the, the farmers with the chefs and how that collaboration then starts to um, to create this ripple effect throughout the community, right? And the tourism, yeah. Absolutely, and they're already thinking about the partnerships they need to build with other chefs and other farmers as they build out their business plans. So, you know, again, it's all part of that longer term model and looking at where you can work in collaboration and co-opetition. Um, you know, and, and the, the key piece here with, with our programs is, you know, is the more dollars that uh, stay in our local economy and our local food not only helps to ensure that we've got farmers growing our food, but, you know, ideally we're using it as a platform to raise awareness around the importance of biodiversity, the importance of, you know, uh, regenerative farming, organic farming. Um, you know, it's a shift. It's a small shift in getting people to care about where your food comes from and how it's raised and treated and, mm -hmm. You know, it's um, the again a silver lining from COVID is people seem to care a lot more about what they're eating because we've got lots of time to cook, right. <laughs> and we're seeing you know we're just seeing a different interest. So this is where for destinations that haven't really thought about food as part of their economy or their offering, this is a really great time to sort of reflect and figure out how to leverage that visitor 
coming to help um, look at how to make the community as a whole healthier, but again, through, through the different lens than just a monetary health. Right. Well, and, you know, as I think about our country, every single province and territory has an opportunity with respect to agriculture, right? It's one of the great unifiers between all of us. We, different crop, different output, but it's still associated with food and nourishment. hundred uh-huh. percent. And, and the great thing about Canada being uh, a country that has so many uh, um, cultures that have influenced our culinary foodways is from community to community, destination to destination, depending on how they were uh, settled, you get all these different culinary traditions that also come out. So in addition to what's grown and raised, it's also about the people and the place and their foodways. And this is really the kind of optimum way for a consumer to connect. It's the ultimate experience because it's multi-sensory, right? Wow, very powerful. Okay, so just in wrapping up on this segment on measurement, I'm curious, and this is a this is a handful, but what do you think the top five things, what are the top five metrics to actually measure? Uh, what do you think would be the most important ones for a, a community or a economic development office that's looking to build this visitor um, economy? What should they really have their eye on? What do you think is most important? I think it's to measure um, the... Uh, the, the stakeholder engagement at the offset okay. to, to sort of say, okay, you know, if we've heard as many voices that have given us the, the vision and the direction to help influence this, then you've, you've started in a good place. I think if you're looking at what do you see as the potential for growth from, um, you know, recognizing what you need to sustain your lifestyle in the community and then what you need to grow uh, the lifestyle in the community. So, the, the, you know, measuring the nice, not the nice to haves, but the needs to have under, and understanding, you know, looking at how different parts of a municipality are funded, whether they're municipally funded or provincial or federal. So kind of having that, that measurement to sort of say, if we're here now, and, and this is what utopia looks like, what's it going to cost to maintain right. that growth? Because again, if you're just looking at, we want to go from, 60, 6 million a year in visitor spending to 20 million. Great. Okay. But where's that, where did that money go? What has that money done to help elevate the community and the lifestyle of the community, not just the visitor experience or the visitor offering? I think it's also looking at managing, uh, measuring the flow of your, of your community. So what, where do you make sure that, uh, that you see balance over time that you don't, you know, focus on something that's going to create that peak and valley, but more, how do you, how do you look at some balance and, uh, and measure that as well. And I would also say, um, you know, measuring the, um, the ongoing engagement of your business community, because, you know, one of the challenges with so many destinations is they get up and going and they have momentum and that's great, but then they've got it and they become complacent. And uh, I think complacency is a killer. So, you know, how do you, because just because you've hit critical awareness from a consumer standpoint, doesn't mean that you stop planning and you stop yes. and you stop, you, you constantly need to be going back into that cycle and reassessing, right. And finding that sweet spot because you don't want to hit the breaking point, which yeah. is where, you know, I, I see, I see in Prince Edward County, there was a period of complacency oh, we're busy enough, people know where we are, they're coming, we don't really need to do anything. 
No, you need, you need to actually be doing lots of things. When, when times are good, you need to think about all the potential systems and where they could crack and recognize, like, put your resources there so that, you know, you build more, uh, you build more um, public washrooms, you build better trail systems that have better waste disposal, you build, um, you know, you build better systems for managing traffic overflow, you build better systems to ensure that, you know, um, that's that, that, that the, the housing market has the ability to uh, keep the locals engaged as much as, you know, an opportunity for new investment. So I think measurement of continued engagement is important. Well, complacency, it's the killer of every business, right? It's the blockbuster Netflix story. And so it just, again, it, it echoes in this strategy on, on, you know, destination tourism. Complacency is just not going to, is not going to cut it. And um, one of the points that I thought was, uh, was so important when we first started this segment is uh, measuring who is the tourist, right? Who, who is that? Now, we're not going to have, to your point, we're not going to have a lot of uh, international tourists, but really understanding what that profile looks like and the diversity of that profile, right? Yeah, diversity yeah. of the profile. And also, again, like measuring, figuring out how you measure health beyond wealth. So if you can measure that your ability to grow keeps certain cultural assets intact and maybe you invest in more, great. If you measure um, how... Uh, you're taking steps to ensure that the environment is, is being respected and is constantly being protected. Great. You know, but these are all, these aren't new ways of thinking, but again, you know, through the work of the United Nations World Tourism Organization and the World Travel and Tourism Council, thankfully the sustainable development goals is becoming something more discussed within the tourism sector. It's still very challenging though, because many uh, destinations don't control the end product, the business operator. So I would like encourage your founders, you know, this is at a time and a place where we need to actually be making the change that this world needs to see. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if the pandemic wasn't a wake up call, then maybe, you know, a number of other key issues that have happened in the last 24, 36 months uh, should be. But it's really kind of stepping back and going, okay, you know, um, how do I do better within my business so that it's my, my business isn't just measured by profitability and, 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 and I look at like, how am I giving back to, you know, my community? How am I ensuring that I'm respecting the environment? You know, I, I'm involved with CEO. I'm not sure if you're yes. here. So yes. an activator. I love that this is, you know, an organization that's teaching uh, women in, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial skills, but also keeping those kind of things top of mind, because I think often, again, we just are so focused on money. And uh, I think, you know, it's not the be all and end all, you know, um, happiness should be measured by more than that. And so should the health of a community. Yeah, no, I think that is, uh, that is absolutely powerful. I know that, you know, in the work that we do, we talk oftentimes about profit and that it's important to profit in business, but um, profit is what ensures the long-term health of the business, right? And it is not at the cost of purpose, people or planet. But what I love about what you're, what, what I'm hearing and what you're saying is it's how does your business goals actually align with that purpose, align with bettering people and your team and the community, align with, um, with really bringing that purpose to light and, and the way that you serve people. And all of it can be done together, right? It is, uh, it's very powerful, absolutely. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for giving us this inside glimpse into, you know, how Prince Edward County really, it, it, uh, 
to me, it's I've always been fascinated by the story because it it's incredible to see what it accomplished in such a short amount of time. And having family in Toronto and having everybody always speak about Prince Edward County, I'm like, what is going on in this place? You know, the ripple effect. So um, thank you for investing the time to share all of that insight and expertise with founders and with uh, with with rural economic development officers that are somewhat tasked with you know finding ways to make their community stronger. So appreciate you and all that you do. And I know that you're open to speaking to, to anybody that's really looking to, to echo or to mirror the model that you had in place with, uh, with Prince Edward County. Um, and so your information is in the show notes below. Rebecca's information is down below. So please be sure to, to click on that. So thank you again, Rebecca. Uh, thank you to our episode champions, Community Future Saskatchewan. They have over 13 offices across the province to help founders grow their business and to help those communities thrive. So thank you for all that you do. And founders, thank you for watching. And as always, please stay safe, stay strong, and stay financially fierce. We'll see you for the next episode of the Gap Lab.